2: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Today, we have a very special episode, because we are talking with my nemesis, Sean, from American History Podcast. I hope that we're going to have an interesting conversation about how the Soviet Union collapsed and how to it was in the West. And of course, a little something about, well, Mr. President Reagan and our old friend, Goldby. I'll allow Sean to introduce himself.
3: Okay. Hi, I'm Sean from the American History Podcast. Obviously, I'm the nemesis here of of everything Russian and Eastern (laughs) European. Um, No, but seriously, I'm a high school teacher here in the United States. I live in Texas. I have a a bachelor's and a master's degree in history. My specialty is 19th and 20th century U.S. history, mostly military history, but dabble a little bit in all sorts of different types. So I'm looking forward to the the talk today.
2: Hey, so... I've heard uh, that a lot of American people were actually afraid of the Soviet Union and that the collapse came as a surprise, even though over here we kind of saw that would happen starting from say 86, say. approximately because of the Chernobyl and the stagnation and the fact that all the perestroika allowed all the kind of criticism to come out. Was it a surprise in America when the Soviet Union collapsed?
3: You know, if, if we're talking by 1991 ish, then I think it was a little bit of a surprise, but, you know, maybe just not as much as, as we're looking back now and, and, you know, people talk, oh, it was this big surprise. I think the bigger surprise was the collapse of um, the Berlin Wall, the coming down of the wall kind of the opening up, you know, that 1989 period. That was a bigger surprise. I think what happens is that Americans we tend to move on a little bit. So, you know, you had 1989, you kind of had Holland opening up, everything going on in Eastern Europe, then you had the fall of the Berlin Wall. 1990 comes along, we get into 1991, the Gulf War and all that and so I think Americans we had moved on a little bit. But I think you're right. The writing was there, you know, if you you really go back and you look at Gorbachev coming in, Chernobyl kind of opening, doing the the various treaties with the United States, with Reagan, you know, why are these things happening? Why is Moscow allowing Germany to reunite? I think all of those things were clues that all was not well in the USSR.
2: Yeah, for one, Gorbachev uh, really kind of believed at the point where he was making this Perestroika and Glasnost that people actually just wanted to live in better communism instead of you know, their own countries. The Baltics were just the beginning there, and in modern, modern political situation, we're often blamed by people who want to bring the Soviet Union back that Gorbachev did not have a more aggressive response, even though, well, people did die during the whole process. When
3: you look at it, the Soviet Union, at least from, from you know, this American perspective, I mean, we're looking at, at a multinational empire. And, you know, Latvians didn't want to live under the Soviet yoke anymore. And you had Kazakhs and Kazakhstan and, you know, Estonians, Lithuanians. I mean, all these people wanted they wanted out. This wasn't quite the same thing as let's say China under the Communist Party. They're they're two different things. And um, I think you're right. You know, Gorbachev just had the idea that, well, if we can just make, you know, things better, then everybody will be happy. But it's like, no, we just, you know, we don't like you guys that are ruling over us. And we want our freedom.
2: Well, I think it was the the Russian polarization in the sense that, uh, well, you in the United States are mostly one people. Sort of ish, but there are differences between states that people in Europe don't even realize. But uh, the Soviet Union was truly kind of like austro hungary
3: Exactly, that's a great way of looking at it. Is that you have this empire that's that's very much similar to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, it's this multi-ethnic empire, and it's one thing if it had started off well, and it had a history of I don't know if I want to say goodness, but it had a good history or, or things were going well, and then it got bad. That's one thing, but you know it didn't really start off that way and you had a lot of resentment in Eastern Europe and various not just in let's say Eastern Germany or Czechoslovakia, but also in you know places like Ukraine, places like Estonia, Latvia Lithuania, the Baltic republics so um also into Central Asia. There was lots of resentment against this this domineering state that was ruled by Russians. And it was always doomed to failure, although I don't like the idea of, you know, something being predetermined, but I think in this case, maybe it was kind of predetermined. It was just a matter of time before all of this, you know, came crumbling down. Like you said, you know, I mean, you can look back to Chernobyl and, you know, or maybe even even earlier, I mean, you did an episode or two, I think it was on Afghanistan, probably go back even to that point. And kind of that rot that had begun under Brezhnev, and then you add into that this, this disastrous war and everything that happened in the 1980s, and it just it just kind of snowballed into the final collapse. But I, I think with – from our perspective, we just – Americans kind of pay attention, but we really kind of don't, I hate to say. Um, there's that kind of short attention span, but if, if people had been paying attention, I think the writing was on the wall.
2: I have another question there um, because, well, Reagan hated communism. That's at least the myth here. But uh, how did he became such an active opposer of, of communism instead of, you know, trying to work with the USSR, but like, you know, actively opposing them and being like hostile in foreign relations? Sure, there were deals, but in general, he was always... Pushing for more liberty, and you know the famous Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. All this attitude—where does it come from?
3: You know, Reagan had been an FDR Democrat in the 30s, and but then by the 40s, especially I think by the 50s, he kind of switches, and I think what it what did it was the Cold War. I think it'd be fair to say that Reagan was a uh, very much pro-American, very much rah-rah America. And so you get this Cold War that starts up in the aftermath of, of World War II, and that I think was really kind of the breaking point. And I think he was influenced by the Red Scare, but not to be sympathetic to communism, but I think you know he realized that I mean, to some extent, I mean, obviously a lot of the charges weren't correct, but a few of them here and there kind of were right, Um, even though people like Alger Hiss never admitted to being a communist. There was a book released in the late late 1990s called The Venona Project that talks about, it may, some people say, no, The Venona Project doesn't condemn Alger Hiss, but it may not be an airtight case, but it's a pretty good case, again, that he was a spy. And, you know, you had others, the Rosenbergs and whatnot, and I think all that kind of influenced him to become this very ardent anti-communist along the lines of, let's say, of Richard Nixon. And so by the time he becomes president in you know, 1981, when he takes office in January of 81, he is this very strident anti-communist. But it's interesting because really what we kind of attribute to this policy change under Reagan, where he decides to confront the Soviets rather than make deals with them, as Richard Nixon had done in, in the early 70s during detente, Actually, some of that policy kind of started late under Carter. You've got the invasion of Soviets into Afghanistan in 1979, and really kind of Carter started this, we're going to try to confront them a little bit. It's kind of more moralistic policy rather than the Nixonian realpolitik, right? Nixon was very much, let's play you know, two sides against each other, and we're not dealing with morals here. This is politics. You know, as you would expect, kind of from a, a Nixonian presidency. So Reagan kind of takes up that mantle, that crusade, that more moralistic high ground up until about 1983. And not to toot my own horn, but we're doing a bonus show that we're doing on on Patreon for our Patreon listeners called 1983: The Year the World Almost Ended. That looks at this year, what was going on in 1983. This is when you know you get the shooting down of the airliner KAL-007 by the Soviet Air Force over um, the Pacific there by by Korea and Japan, you get um, this operation called Operation Able Archer that was a normal fall exercise by NATO, but it really panicked Andropov. And Andropov was was just totally convinced that this was a cover in 1983 for an invasion of the Soviet Union. Later that fall, in late November, I think it was, it was in about seventh grade at that time, eighth grade. And um, there was a show on on American television called um, The Day After. And it was this show combined with some reports from American intelligence and British intelligence that finally made their way to Reagan about how the Soviets were really thinking you guys are going to invade. That really affected Reagan. And so by 1984, I think he, there's a diary entry, and, it, and it's escaping my mind right now, uh, late 83, early 84, where Ronald Reagan basically says, you know, we've we got to stop this. Like, We cannot go into nuclear war. We can't We can't do that. And so you're going to get a softening of the Reagan position a little bit in the late 1984-ish timeframe. You know, once Andropov is gone, you get uh, Chernenko, and then um, what, Chernenko is gone, and then it's Gorbachev. Am I, I'm hoping I'm getting that right. I think it was Andropov before Chernenko, but by the time Gorbachev comes in, you know, Reagan really wants to try to end this whole game because he realizes, you know, this could get out of hand, as it almost did in 1983. And, you know, he just needs somebody he can do business with, somebody that he can he can make a deal with, to some extent make a deal, but also... It's weird because he does believe that that capitalism is better than communism. He is a real believer. And I think there's a time when he he's in Moscow, I think it was 88, where he's given a speech at, at Moscow State University talking about how capitalism is better. Of course, you had the famous one where he's standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate and says, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So he's an interesting figure, and I I I think Americans don't give him as much credit maybe – as they should. I mean, yes, Republicans do, you know, you've got people on the right, like um, Rush Limbaugh and others that they almost deify Reagan. And I think that's kind of bad, but I think that historians kind of look at Reagan and and it's almost like, well, it was going to, and I did it just a few minutes ago. Well, it was going to, it was kind of inevitable. And maybe the fall was inevitable, but you kind of have to help things along. And I think Reagan to some extent did. He's a fascinating, I find him just, he's just a fascinating historical figure.
2: And another thing when we're talking about uh, dangerous stuff, and this is what I ask to all of my American guests, if something would happen today, for example, Russia invading Latvia or Estonia, how likely is it that NATO actually does the thing, you know, goes to war with Russia? over the Baltics? I've heard different answers, and I would like to hear your take on the Wow. And it's a very depressive question now.
3: (laughs) That is, that is. I'd have to say that it's probably more than 50% likely that if Russia were to invade um, Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania... um
2: Sorry, but this sounds like... It works 90% or of 50% of the time.
3: Yeah, um, it is a depressive question. And I think for me, it's so depressive because I, I hate the answer that I'm about to give. I would say that it's extremely likely that the United States would go to war and would uphold its obligations. I think, you know, especially right now, there seems to be in the United States this idea that, that Trump is, you know, a Putin puppet is what the Democrats quite charge, but I, I think he's been a little bit more belligerent than he would normally have been. And I think that all you would have to say is treaty obligations. And he may not want to do it, but um, I think I think the United States would, would uphold its obligations. You know, especially if American troops were participating in NATO and were killed, then from 90 percent, I think it shoots up to 99.9 um, percent Americans would be there and god yeah, that is a depressive question
2: <laughs> well back back to the early 90s
3: if we're going to talk about modern stuff and the possibility for war um it's far more likely we would uphold those treaty obligations against russia than we would against say um china like if there's one that we would probably try to wiggle out of i think it would be war with china i think war with the russians would be far more likely than it would be with China.
2: Let's go back to the 90s, because, wow, this is getting a bit depressing. I wouldn't want to see more motor wars. I've seen one, uh, was not nice. Yeah. (laughs) There's a saying that um, the Soviet Union collapsed because of uh, jeans and rock and roll, and I'm a heavy supporter of this, the way the people smuggled stuff in. And I wonder, because I really don't know, because I know the stuff that we got from the United States, but what we'll was smuggled in? Or what Soviet goods could you buy in the stores uh, in, in the United States?
3: That's kind of a sad question because the answer is I don't remember purchasing anything in American stores that was made in the Soviet Union. I think if, if Americans were smuggling in, and they were, you know, cassette tapes and rock and roll and with um, rock and roll on it, and then, you know, like Levi's jeans and whatnot. I think probably they weren't getting a whole lot back. I think probably though, maybe vodka and caviar. Um, for me, like if I were traveling, I wouldn't even really care about getting a fair exchange or a so-called fair exchange. It would just be more the the cool factor that you know I want some some trinkets to take home and and show my friends. Oh look, I got this or that because here, I mean Levi's are just everywhere, you know, or, or jeans in general. Are in every store, um, and you know rack after rack. So, or cassette tapes back in those days, you know they were they were everywhere. So it wasn't anything difficult to get.
2: You didn't have Soviet laser space pistols.
3: That's right. That's right. The, I, I had forgotten about that Soviet laser Reserve pistol that we talked about a few days ago. I could shoot up at Venus and you know or at the, the moon.
2: And <laughs> it, it wasn't for that. It's just that you know if we speak of Reagan, he spoke about Star Wars. There must be a picture somewhere. Soviets actually developed a pistol that was given to astronauts, to cosmonauts. Sorry, astronauts are filthy capitals. (laughs) That's right. It was there to basically poke down enemy lasers. I'm sending you a link uh, to the picture of this, and I'll post the picture uh, on this episode when it comes up. There's actual Soviet laser pistol. That
3: is that is cool. That is amazing.
2: Those little things that they use look like uh, ammo. They're gas capsules.
3: Oh wow! I was just about to ask what are those because I would expect you wouldn't need ammunition, but interesting. That is crazy. And and see, this is the kind of stuff that the Cold War produced. That's why I find the Cold War so fascinating. There's just so many of these little weird things like that. You know, there was a a book and it's on a bookshelf in a different room that I just read in the spring about a Soviet agent. He was inside the KGB and he switched and was spying for the British. And it's just, you know, these Cold War tales are just so fascinating. And um, so, yeah, it's such a great time.
2: Well, now we look back at the craziness. But uh, when you look at the Dr. love movie and they speak about bunker gap or whatever gap, everyone has taken it seriously. At one point, due to paranoia and the fact that Soviet leaders tended to be a bit believers in some paranormal stuff as well, there was a thing called psychic gap and I've yet to find documentation on but uh, there was a Soviet Area fifty one, except it wasn't a volcano. Because well obviously we had to have one in Volcano.
3: <laughs> I mean that that is like almost something out of a James Bond film, right? Yeah,
2: but this is this is the fun part about the Cold War.
3: You've got the, the, the bad guy, or in this case you communists, you evil empire guys, and your headquarters is in like a volcano, right? I mean <laughs> Hollywood um <laughs> Oh man, Hollywood couldn't think of something quite as cool. It, it, I had a professor once who said, you know, reality is stranger than fiction. And um I think in some cases that's true, right? Like, you know, these spy gadgets that they had and but you know, you look back now and, and just at our technology now, phones with cameras and I mean and great cameras too, by the way, compared to what we had back in the the 70s and 80s, it's, it's amazing how much technology has changed. Um, you know, phones with GPS.
2: Well, Russia used to have its own GPS, but sadly, all the satellites have now gone out from the orbit. So you don't have to worry about that.
3: Oh, really? So yeah, they're, they're all gone now? That.
2: Wow. Yeah. And the latest uh, military exercises they had, they found out that the helicopter pilots were just using GPS in their smartphones to Orient instead of uh, uh, the Russian system. Then again, in the latest military exercise, a helicopter pilot shot a rocket in a building unrelatedly and then uh, a random infantry person started to cook a meal inside of his APC and accidentally burned it down from (laughs) his Oh, oh But I'm pretty sure wow. that stuff like this happens whatever militaries are involved well. You
3: know, you've always got knuckleheads. There's always that one guy that, you know, does something stupid, like cook a meal inside your APC. Um <laughs> that there's there's always gotta be one. You know? It's it's not just in the Russian military, sadly. <laughs>
0: Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online.
2: This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy.
1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Yeah, but, <laughs> well, the Soviet army did not have uh, stuff like meals ready to eat. We had like tons and tons of canned, varied substances. back in the 90s because, you know, food was hard to come by as the sudden shift from socialism to capitalism, uh, yeah, you either went to the countryside where your grandma pickled everything or, well, if you knew someone in the Soviet army was leaving, then you could, like, you know, grab some extras. Which is why, like a lot of people, still have like uh, Soviet-era gas masks and whatnot laying around everywhere. Wow,
3: that's that's insane. Now you asked me about Reagan and the the American perspective. So, what was what was kind of the Russian or the Eastern? Because um, you you probably will get a little bit of Russian, but also you know on um, the Baltic areas. What was the perception of Reagan on the communist side?
2: Well the official statement from the government was that he's pushing on this arms race and we're going to try to do some peace now and that the soviet side is obviously the more civilized the more peaceful one but in general well a lot of people in the baltics saw him as you know yes the guy who's finally doing the right thing because uh, well the soviet union doesn't really understand any other language besides that of power. Then again, uh, back then we also tended to kind of idealize the life in the United States. And similarly, some older people still here or in Russia or in other Eastern European parts where they don't like use internet that much, or just, they're just older and don't speak English and haven't seen an America in their lives. They tend to think of the United States as some sort of uh, utter paradise. But everyone's rich, basically, and kind of like this caricature version, you know, something like you would see in like old comedy series or whatever. Because in the, in the early 90s, we got all of your shows. We saw Full House for the first time. Then we had MacGyver and the A team. And then we had uh, Dallas. That shows well. And then, you know, we had um, kind of a skewed perspective of life in the uh, USA. Same as uh, um, today, a lot of people, for example, here think that uh, black people are a much Much a larger part of the United States population than they are. Like the average person thinks, it's about forty percent. Oh wow! Yeah, that's just because all the news that we get are either from these Black Lives Matter protests or from well gangster rap videos or whatever. So people tend to tend to have stereotypical views, specifically, you know, if you're about sixty. And you turn on the TV and then you see like, I don't know, 50 cents video and it's like guns and everything. And that kind of filters down and is lame because, you know, I've been to the States a couple of times and then you come back and then you try to explain to people that, hey, it's actually people and we should be less racist in general. We we have this casual racism thing still left over but uh trying to fix it
3: yeah it's it's hard for people to to get over kind of you know those kind of stereotypes of I me mean, but even here when i was so when i was in um i did my undergraduate at the university of arizona and um when i first got there and you know i said i'm from texas people were like you're not from texas and like yeah, I I think I know where I'm from. I'm from Texas. And they're like, no, you don't have a Texas accent. And I'm like, okay, but Texas is a really big state. Not everybody has the the draw. Um, so I'm from far West Texas. We don't really have the accent. And then the other thing they wanted to know is, you know, did I have a horseback home? I'm like, no, this is a city of, you know, half a million people. <laughs> I, I I mean, I've been horseback riding a few times in my life but i mean i could count it on one hand how many times i've I've ridden a horse you know um now now guns and texans tend to own guns but um other than that the, the stereotype is um often wrong and it's like the cartoon version of you know what texans are like or what americans are like
2: i guess it works both ways too if you watch um Hollywood movies set in Eastern Europe or Russia or whatever, everyone just laughs about them because uh, bears vodka balalikas and a very thick Russian accent. Yes,
3: yes, you've got the thick Russian accent. You got a bottle of vodka. um You know, if it's if it's like a, a little town or something, it's probably this really poor, crappy looking. Town that looks like it's it's still bombed out from World War II or something, you know? Or if it's a big city, then you're going to get the Russian mobsters. It's it's definitely this caricature. And yeah, it's, it, I, I like what you said. It's like this casual racism.
2: Well, well, Putin, when I asked in about 2014, I guess, maybe earlier, uh, stated that um, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of our time. But everyone who wants it back has no brain, yet people who don't feel nostalgic for it have no heart. That's a Putin's statement. How would you comment on this?
3: God, this is such a complicated statement, right? And he's got so many catches there. And he's like, well, it was was a, a tragedy of our time. But if you want him to come back, you know, you're you're brainless. So it's like he's trying to to speak to different elements. I think that's the politician. Uh, I don't I don't know, maybe the 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 FSB is listening, so I don't know if, if I wanna condemn Putin too much. You never know. I might No,
2: no, sure. <laughs> By this point it doesn't matter.
3: <laughs> I might end up with some nuclear stuff in my drink or something. Um, but I mean he's not running for election, so it's interesting. And you know you got to wonder who's he speaking to in in these different statements that are all in one statement. They're they're I think said for different audiences, but when you look at the history, I mean, wow! Um, An American historian who studied the Soviet Union and Russia, Stephen Cohen, just died. I think today he brings up you know did the Soviet Union really need to end the way it did? I mean that's an interesting question. Did it need to end? You know what was the coup in August? and then Gorbachev and it's all gone like 3 months later 4 months later um you know an interesting question did it need to end that way um and then you're going to get what about a decade or so i don't know if i want to say chaos but and you mentioned the 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 transition from communism to capitalism or at least some version of capitalism is a rough one so hmm i think the soviet state needed to go and i'm going to say that because when you look at it, it's, it's, it's this weird thing. And I know that the Russians kind of built up this cult of personality around Lenin. But it wasn't really Leninist so much. There's some Leninism in it.
2: Oh, oh, talking about Lenin. And this is relevant. It was a Stalinist state, yeah. And the Communist Party is closer to Stalin now. Yeah. But, but, just last week, the Moscow Architectural Bureau stated just a public conquest of, uh, well, what should we do with Mausoleum if we would take Lenin out of it? And it caused such a massive backlash that they openly stated that uh, Lenin's going to be a mummified there forever.
3: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. um, That's an interesting thing because I've been to China three times and I've never been to Russia, sadly, and and I I really... Would like to go to Russia one of these days. I got, I've got to get over there. Um, but I've been to China actually five times, if you count just Hong Kong itself, um, which is—I mean, it's not China, but it is China. Let's face it. Um, so, and the three of the times that I've been there, I've seen—I've gone to the mausoleum where they have Mao, which is an interesting question because it brings up the question, you know, as we just said, it, you've got this cult of personality around Lenin, but really the Soviet Union was more of a Stalinist state than a Leninist state. And then you look at China. Is China really a Maoist state or is it something different? And modern China really, I think, starts with the rise of Deng into power in the late 70s. Once he's defeated the Gang of Four and really he's you know, in charge, that's when you really get this, this modern China that, that we're, we've got today, um, which is still a little bit – it's obviously evolved in the last forty 40, 40 years. So those are those are interesting things to me, but yeah, I I think getting back to our question on the Soviet Union, I think it needed to go. Um, I don't know that you can reform a state that had its origins essentially in this rule of of somebody like Stalin. Which, you know, I mean, yeah, he got the Soviets through World War II. Okay, I mean, I guess you get some credit for that, Um, but was that him or was that the people? you know, was that his great leadership? Was that just the people and them just saying, you know, we're not going to put up with this? Um, I I think we we sometimes give too much credit to the leaders. I think the Russian people and and the people of the Soviet Union who defeated the Nazis really deserve more of that credit. And so you look at by the 80s, this thing is a mess. It's a basket case. You've got, you know, millions of people in the Gulag. You've got, you know, you've got people in Ukraine who, who just aren't going to accept this. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe there's what in eastern Ukraine there's a percentage of of the population that that's heavily Russian, but otherwise there's a large group of people throughout, you know, the Baltics, throughout Ukraine, throughout the Central Asian areas who are just who are tired of it. We've had their environment screwed up by this government. We've had their people put in jail without due process. I mean, how? Can you reform that state? And will these people ever accept it?
2: Well, I think you can't. But there are a huge bunch of, um, well, people who are, let's say, Russian opposition, but they're even further to the right than Putin. It's like, uh, I watch this YouTube channel, Roy TV, run by a guy who spent three years in prison for far-right activities. And one of their guests there is the famous uh, Girkin or Strelkov, uh, as he would like to be known, the guy who basically orchestrated uh, the whole Donbass thing. And now he's kind of thrown aside. And yeah, their shtick is that Ukrainians and Belarusians, they're actually all just Russians they just don't know it. That is why, for example, in a lot of Ukrainian and Belarusian media, they always say that they are not the same as Russians. Oh, and they also don't blame Americans for all their problems. That was a, that was a running gag, man. There, there there was a pro-Putin squad of grandmothers who um, burned fake dollars and cursed. Obama and Trump, because they thought, let me, how to, how to put this properly? So, Putin increased the retirement age and lowered the Social Security for everyone. And they blamed the Americans for it.
3: <laughs> now, that's a good politician right there. <laughs> that's a good politician. You know, how, how do you get away with that, right? You're the guy who, who uh, actually does the business, and then you get them to blame. both Obama and Trump. I mean, um, but you know, this brings up an interesting point too, though. um, And that's the idea that, you know, people complain about Putin, but what's the alternative or, um, you know, there are people that are far um, more rightist or right wing out there. Ramzan
2: Kadira for one.
3: Um, And for Putin, for all of his faults and, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not going to mention them now, but, I mean, there's plenty that we could condemn him for. You know, he's not a stupid man. I, I don't think you can say that he's a dumb, dumb person. I, that, that would not be a uh, an argument that I would make myself, I have to say. Um, I might make other arguments about him, but, you know, stupidity is definitely not uh, huh, on that list right there, you know?
2: Yeah, but he has... Um... Same as with Gorby, because they still have to play their own political leads. Putin himself is an intelligent person. Medvedev and Mishustin and people he's um, surrounded himself with, well, they are, in my opinion, pure loyalists, not intelligent people. Same with with Gorby, uh, as the Soviet Union collapsed. And, you know, it might sound weird as we're speaking about about Putin, but um, the idea that Russia itself might actually collapse in, say, 10 years or something, it's actually gone down in the mainstream even. Like, even mainstream media are now speaking about how the situation economically is getting kind of close and how the system is actually well as stable than you might think. But everyone's afraid of another another era where basically crime is rampant. But in the darkest case scenario, we'd be looking at separate states with nukes who hate each other.
3: It is an interesting point there. I mean, as we think about, well, Putin, and Putin gets played as this, you know, he's, at least by some in, in American media, if not most, He's played off as kind of like Darth Vader. But, you know, I, I've said, well, be careful what you wish for. You might get it. I mean, if without Putin, okay, what's next? Well, and you mention it. The Russian economy is not very good. I think the GDP is something on the order of, of Italy.
2: I think it might, might be even less. GDP per purchasing power was around the level of Portugal.
3: And But you've got this huge country, and if it breaks apart, because it could break apart even further, what happens, you know, you've got these, these now even smaller countries out of this one big one, some of them have nukes, many of them don't like each other, um, I mean, just witness the, the war in the 90s in Chechnya.
2: Yeah, and the, the fact that uh, everyone, you know, living in the Far East, mine the diamonds and the gold and uranium and get all the oil, yeah, they don't get anything. Uh, The thing is that um, Russia today, and that's the legacy from the Soviet Union, basically treats Moscow and St. Petersburg as the colonial capitals. Like in you in the United States, Boeing is in Seattle, right? Then there are major tech companies in California. Then you have like oil companies in Texas. It's kind of spread out. Imagine if every company was legally registered and thus paid taxes, too, only to Washington, D.C. That is how it's happening in, in Russia, which is why Moscow is super huge.
3: And it's crazy. I mean, you, you know, you would have secession here. I mean, that, that would just, there would be a civil war at some point.
2: Guess what? Secessionist movements are, are in the air already. Because it's like colony.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it. This is basically imperialism, colonialism. You've got this: the Far East of Russia, which is this colony that's being bled for its mineral wealth and whatnot, in order to fatten Moscow and Saint Petersburg, where he, and here in the United States. Because you know, a lot of people think about California as the tech capital, especially San Jose, that that area, Silicon Valley. Um, Seattle is another tech area, but it's also got Boeing. But Boeing is also in other places in the country, and and places like Dallas do have technology, but also aerospace stuff there. Um, Austin, Texas, has uh, kind of moved up with tech in the last fifteen or twenty years, and so you're right; it's 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 spread out.
2: And you can't forget Texas Instruments.
3: Yeah, so there there, there are tech companies in Texas, and more are coming, especially with not so favorable taxing situation that that. You have in California, and maybe even to some extent in Washington and the West Coast, Texas has a very favorable tax rate for business and for individuals, I mean, we don't pay state income tax at all. Wow, now we have to pay federal taxes, which you know nobody likes, but um can't really get away from that but yeah people people are coming to texas and and but you're getting other places too, you know, in the south um, Georgia, automobile manufacturing, uh, South Carolina.
2: Yeah, and and in Russia, it's like totally opposite. And a lot of um, people are still saying that it's a remnant from the Soviet era. You know, in the Soviet era, everything was run by the party. Everything was owned by the state, i.e. the party, whose central office was in Moscow. Therefore, we have to talk about this inherited centralization of the whole system and that's one of the things
3: it's it's kind of weird because technology seems to make it a little easier to centralize but i think it's also creating these centrifugal forces that are pulling things apart and a little bit you're seeing it in the united states this summer and and over the last you know decade where i mean i've got friends that i'm like it seems to me like you guys don't really like each other, you know. Maybe secession is a good idea. Maybe you know California can secede and join with uh, Oregon and Washington and kind of do its thing. And you know, if if we're seeing that here, now imagine those forces in Russia.
2: Well, well, if something's going to start happening. I'll I'll be sure to notice this and then boast about it. We kind of have to wrap up. We've been doing this for close to an hour. But uh, what I would like to say is that, unlike the Soviet Union, well, from my visit to the United States, I have understood that even though all of your states are totally different, each of you consider themselves to be the correct version of American. People in Boston have told me that, and I've been to Fort Worth, But yeah, basically, everyone considers themselves to be the best proper American. And you have something in your country that is, despite some secessionists, holding it together. Meanwhile, well, nothing like that existed in the Soviet era. What do you want people here in the Baltics rooted for foreign teams beating the Soviets in the Olympics?
3: That's a great point, yeah. That would never... I mean, maybe... A little bit, you know, you might get like, uh, in soccer, um, where I live there, I'd say like 85% of the people here are, um, of Mexican American heritage. So, you know, like if this, the, the Mexican team is playing the United States in soccer, okay, you'll get people rooting for Mexico, but like in the Olympics, mm, not really. So yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. And I never really thought of it that way, um, you know, for all of our differences, you're right. Americans really do still see themselves as Americans. And that's something that, that you would not have really seen in the Soviet Union, to the best of my knowledge. Um, and, and like you pointed out, the Baltics are rooting against the Soviet Olympic teams. That might tell you all you need to know.
2: Probably. But yeah, let us end this on the positive note. We make shows about different stuff but in the end it's all about all about world and people in general and we have one thing that we didn't have back in Sabatera free communication with each other i mean can you imagine in the 90s people had internet you know i got
3: email access in 1993 through my university and it was the most mind blowing thing that you could send a message, and if somebody was on the computer at the same time, they could see it instantly. Take a minute, respond, send it back. That was just it was mind blowing, it was game changing. I mean, we're sitting here, I'm in Texas, you're you know, you're you got the KGB hanging I outside of your up. house <laughs> 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 looking for you. I mean, you know, you're in the Baltics, I mean, I'm way out here. And we're able to communicate, and it's, it's, it's insane how much things have changed in 30-some-odd years. And I think the more people communicate, the more we learn about each other, the more we realize. Um, I, I'm going to quote a Depeche Mode song here since we're, we were talking about the 80s and can't really talk about the yeah. 80s and not mention Depeche Mode, right? I mean, come on. Um, people are people. At the end of the day, they put their pants on one leg at a time. They've got worries and concerns just like we do and they're just trying to make it through today, just like I'm trying to make it through today, and you know, just like you are, and so hopefully we'll try to figure out a way to get through this crazy year (laughs) that has been 2020. Um, But it was good talking to you, buddy. I enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, yeah, thank you very much, And, and let's talk sometime again.
3: Sounds good to me. We'll do this again.
2: Okay. Свидания,
0: Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhozes in the Great Motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one.
1: The Dark Myths Void. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up.